who is excited about history this morning? Anyone? I am. I am thrilled about history. Um, and here's why. We are at the 500-year birthday of what? The start of the Reformation. Now, you say, but Dave, that's not till two days away. When you're 500 years old, if you're within a day or two, it's the birthday. Okay, so we are at the 500-year mark of celebrating the start of the Reformation, uh, which was when Martin Luther, you may have heard of the guy, was a monk. He goes to the church at Wittenberg and he pounds up his 95 theses and the world has been changed ever since then. What it is is not a celebration of a denomination. We're not celebrating Lutheranism. We are celebrating the grace of God. That's what, that's what I hear when I hear the start of the Reformation. And it's not that God's grace was ever absent. God's grace has always been there. Complete salvation for the sinner. The problem is, over time, we have wayward, wandering eyes and hearts. And we wander away from central truths. And then what happens is layer after layer of yuck kind of gets put on. And so this beautiful priceless thing gets clouded and shrouded. It gets kind of hidden even though it's there in plain sight. What's sad is just like in Jesus' day, 500 years ago, it was the people holding the keys to the church that were keeping people from seeing the mystery of God's grace. They were the ones keeping people from entering the kingdom of God. Just like in Jesus' day. Wayward teaching leads to false teaching, which then leads to the wicked things of the heart emerging. And I would say one of the worst things that emerged from this time was just greed. Priests were forgiving sins, but for a price. Hebrews 4.12 says this, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's word did that and does that. And it not only reforms individuals, it actually reforms entire institutions. I mean, what could be more rock solid in their day and age than the Roman Catholic Church? That wasn't going anywhere, or so it seemed. By 1517, when this happened, one lone monk was so set on fire by the truth that he took action that no one else was taking at the time. Here's what's fascinating. If you read about this, I've never studied what led up to, what was leading up to October 31st, 1517. What was going on in Luther's life? Here it is. He's a relatively new professor teaching, and he teaches through the Psalms. And the very next book that he teaches through, from the years 1515 up to 1517, catch this, is the book of Romans. The very book that we are systematically walking through and just getting all this amazing truth from, not only is reforming us, but that led to the Reformation, the start of the Reformation. It led to him taking action and saying, wait a minute, this is not right. I do not want you to get excited about history for history's sake this morning. I would rather have you be excited about history for the faithfulness that it prompts for all of us Moving forward, 
I want everyone in the room to, to do something for me. I want you to think of one thing that scares you about the future. I'm going to give you a second. One thing that has you scared or worried about the future. You're not going to share it, so be honest in your own brain. You got it? Every single one of you, myself included, the people on stage behind me, everyone in this room is listening to some voice to help them get through what scares them about the future. In fact, more than that, not just comforting them and giving them hope or, or causing them worry, but it's actually guiding them as to how they will act walking forward. Here's my plea with you. Listen to the voice. There's one that sees the beginning from the end. Sees the whole entire big picture. This is why I'm thrilled about history this morning. And I want to kind of take you in there with me. Romans 11. And uh, if you're a note taker, pull out your sermon notes. might help you follow along, jot some things down. You know, the ocean is an utter mystery to some people. Waves crash and then they don't. They're big and then they aren't. And there just seems to be sort of no rhyme or reason to it all. Others understand the ocean better. And to them, it's not a huge mystery. I'm pretty confident that I could watch every single one of you for a handful of moments in or near the ocean with some waves crashing, and I could get a sense pretty quickly if you fall into one camp or the other. To the uninitiated, the ocean is on shuffle. There's just a random movement of things that happening. And here's what I see. I see three sort of distinct patterns of people trying to deal with waves coming at them as they stand near the shore. The first one is the possum. The possum is this. They understand there's a wave coming and that there's a sort of impending sense of danger happening. And so what does a possum do when they're threatened? They pretend they're unconscious, right? They freeze. And so some people see it, and they're at least wise enough to know that thing could hurt or do some damage. So they go like this, and they brace themselves like this. Well, if it's a big enough shore break, how does that work out for them? Right, they disappear into a frothy soup, right? And then they kind of come up sputtering, and they, and they do it all over again. They stand in roughly the same spot, and they brace for themselves again. That's, that's the possum. Here is another one. The other one that I see is the spawning salmon. A spawning salmon is someone who, again, sees danger coming. A wave has crashed. There's white water rushing at them. And what do they do? They try to go over the wave. They jump into the wave and up and over the wave. And when you jump, if your feet leave here and you jump into a wave, what happens? You go back 10 feet, right? So then you get out here, another wave comes, boom. So, I mean, just look for it next time. You will see spawning salmon at the beach all the time. They're jumping up and over the wave. And again, if it's big enough, they're just, ba-choom! They're just getting clobbered. That's the second one. Possum. Spawning salmon. Some of you are like, I'm, I already know what I am. I'm a spawning salmon. You already know what you are. Some of you are Usain Bolt. Who is Usain Bolt? He's the world-class sprinter from Jamaica. Right. Fast guy in the world. So what happens is, wave is coming. What do people do? Ah! And they run away. But you're not a Usain Bolt. You know why? There is water rushing back out that's sucking up into that shore break. So what's happening to you? You're running away, and you get absolutely clobbered by the wave. Now, I've been a youth pastor long enough. I've been on enough beach trips with this group of people, with many of you, to know 
Some of you, I could pick which one you are. Let me tell you, by the way, if you are relatively uninitiated or, or relatively, you know, like just sort of unknowing what's happening with the beach, let me tell you the only two things that you need to know, generally speaking, when a treacherous wave is approaching. One is move toward the wave. Okay, don't turn your back on it like this. Go toward the wave. And secondly, go under. So toward and under will almost always be better than any other alternative. Don't be a possum, don't be Usain Bolt, and don't be a salmon. That's just totally free of charge, some sort of wave technique for you, okay? This is what happens. That avoids the very invasive saltwater cleansing that occurs that some of you have experienced with poor wave management. You have poor wave management, you just get saltwater in places. You're like, wow, there are places in my body I didn't know I had. That's what happens with it. I, on the other hand, and there's many in this room. I, I see uh, divers. Um, I, I know there are kayakers. I know there are fellow surfers in this room. I can appear to predict the future with the ocean, and here's why. It's not because I have magic powers. It's because I see something. The ocean is not on shuffle. The ocean is on repeat. Because the ocean is on repeat and not on shuffle, there's a sense it looks like, wow, this person can know right where to be in the right spot almost, almost all the time. Because the ocean is functioning off of patterns, right? So waves break in sets. If you're paying a little bit of attention, you start to realize, oh, there's about five to six waves per set that kind of roll through. Then there is a lull. If you're paying even more attention, you pay attention to the time of lulls, kind of between set waves. And then you say, oh, wow, the third or fourth set wave tends to be the giant clear-out wave. I better be out further for those. And all this has to do with tides, and then seasons change. And then if you go to different places, you understand that some places produce a massive close-out shore break. Others produce sort of peeling, calm rollers. So all that to say this. If you look at it and pay attention, you see the ocean is on repeat. The ocean is not on shuffle. Why on earth am I talking about this? Here's why. Follow. History is on repeat. It's not on shuffle. History is on repeat. And with a little bit of perspective, if you pull back and you just sort of look at things like you would look at the ocean and say, wait a minute... There are set waves coming through, and that changes, but there are patterns to it. What Paul is doing in this text is this. He is appealing to history, and he is appealing to history so that you can have forward-moving faith that gives you courage. Okay, That's what I want to show you from the text this morning. Now, if you're new with us or uh, have forgotten somehow, uh, we've been in Romans a little while now, huh? Uh, but we're calling this series Colossal Truth. And we're calling it that because Paul is laying out supreme truths in Romans. These are truths that, that, that literally alter the course of history. And they are far-reaching in that he is proclaiming they are true for all people For all of time, here's an example, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Do you hear how all-inclusive that is? That's that's the kind of truth he's laying out. We're in this section of Romans 9, 10, 11. If you look on the wall, ruin, redemption, and rejection are sort of representative of different sections. We're in this rejection section. It's Romans 9, 10, and 11. It's looking at Israel's rejection of God's offer of grace. 
The very people who should be at the front of the line, the very people who should have received it first, are rejecting it in mass. And Paul is addressing this in this section. Chapter 9 of Romans speaks mostly of Israel's past. We just wrapped up chapter 10 last week where it was talking about her present situation. We're now in Romans 11, and so he's turning his attention to Israel's future. Here's what's really telling. In Romans 11, that is all talking about Israel's future, he starts looking back to history and the past. Why? Here's why. Because history, what happened yesterday, is a predictor of what will happen tomorrow. He's wanting to show us history's on repeat. It's not on shuffle. Last week was a whole section about Israel making excuses that sound incredibly familiar to us. Remember selective hearing? It's not that Israel didn't hear. Paul busts that excuse. It's not that they didn't understand. It's very, very simple. There's not a hearing problem. There's not a comprehension problem. There is a simple obedience Problem, And this feels very familiar to us. For parents, it feels really familiar in the everyday. As, as children of God, we, we get the same thing. We, we, we get these excuses, and they feel familiar to us. Now in chapter 11, Paul is going to raise two questions. The first question is this. Has God rejected his people? Since Israel's rejected God, by and large, has God rejected his people? And what's on display is God's character. That's what's at stake with this question. Not next week, because next week's Orphan Sunday, but in two weeks, he's going to ask a second question, and it's this. He says, did they stumble so far as to fall beyond recovery? Israel's state of ruin is in question. Now, he answers both of these with our little word that we've been hearing all through Romans. Here it is. Meganoita! What does that word mean? That is, that is the word in the strongest way possible of saying, not in a million years. By no means is this true. So I'll give you the answers to both questions right now. He says, by no means. Not at all. That's not, that's not what's going on. Do you see these two questions? Look at these two questions for a second. And again, see if these feel really current. The enemy still whispers these lies to us. God is not good. He's rejected you. He is not in your story. Lie. Lie number two. You're too far gone. You can never come back from where you've wandered. You sin too much. Man, aren't those two questions that Satan woos people with all the time? Here's what God's doing. God's wooing them back. I'm going to use the word remnant because the Bible uses the word remnant. But when you hear the word remnant in the scripture, I want you to remember two words, plan and people. Okay? And here's sort of a big idea that we see going for a while now, and that's this. God has a plan and a people in spite of appearances. God has a plan and a people that he is working and protecting and keeping intact despite appearances that many times in history seem to be contrary to that. History keeps proving this right and true, and Israel has some special part to play in all this, and God's not done with Israel as this chapter points out. So, look in your Bibles, 
Romans 11, chapter 1. I'm not going to read the whole text at once this morning. We're going to just pick our way through it. Here's the giant big idea that he's addressing. Verse 1, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. Now, he makes this declarative statement. He gives a declarative answer. And now he's going to back it up with with what I want to show you as sort of three histories. So if you're taking notes, you can write this down. First, he addresses his own personal history. Look at the rest of verse 1. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul is bringing up his personal testimony. He's driving home a simple point that God hasn't turned his back on Israelites, even if said Israelites blaspheme God, work in exactly the wrong direction with religious fervor, and persecute the ones that are on God's side. You know why he knows that? Because that's Paul. That's his story. He says, you want proof that God hasn't given up on purebred Israelites? Touch me. It's me. I'm living proof that although Israel rejected God, God has accepted me a purebred. This calling card would have been probably of supreme importance to Paul. He enters a room at a dinner party. He would throw this little trifecta resume out. This is three ways of saying sort of the same thing, but it's saying I'm more purebred than you. (laughs) I can trace my, my lineage back. I'm an Israelite of Israelites. Christ came into his life and he changed all of that. In fact, Paul likens all that he used to cling to to garbage. He says in light of saving grace of God, that's all rubbish. That doesn't really matter to me. He's pulling up this fact because it drives home this point so incredibly strong. I am living proof. I am one individual that can represent what God's not done with Israel. Even though we rejected, even though we pulled against, God is working. I want you to think about your own story for a second. You know, it is valid and valuable to think on your own story once in a while. In fact, I think it's imperative to ask this question. What is really going on? What's really going on sort of in the arc of my life? And and where am I at right now? And how do I respond? And how do I live with that? Part of life is what happens to you and what you do. But perhaps a bigger part of life is sort of your own interpretation of those events. Let me give you a hypothetical. A hypothetical is that you're a school-aged child and your best friend ditches you to go sit with some dumb girl. That's what you think of girls at the time. And you have a father that isn't a good father. And so the fact is, best friend doesn't sit with you at lunchtime at school, interpretation in your mind might go something like this. Dad must be right. I really am worthless. I really am just in the way. Do you see how the interpretation and the facts 
of those two, the interpretation, I think, actually outweighs what actually happened. Here's the impact of an interpretation like that that may go all the way back to childhood. Here it is. A deep sense of being a bother to people in your adult life. Instead of bringing all of your amazingness that God created you to be, you find yourself holding up walls, you find yourself staying out of the way, you find yourself believing this lie that you're not amounting to much. And so it's better off just to get by and stay out of the way. So so do you see that facts happen, history happens, but then interpretation of those facts goes a long way to figuring out the kind of life that you'll lead. You know, um, one of the reasons I love meeting with our men's community group Thursday nights is this. There's all kinds of interpretation that gets to go on in community around the Word of God. With Bibles open, we get to sort of draw out from each other where they've been that week, what has them worried or scared about the future, and we fellowship around open Bibles to even help interpret and say, Brother, I I think you're seeing this wrong. I don't think God makes people to stay out of the way. And so we actually can help interpret. Here's the powerful thing I see with Paul. God takes who you are, catch this, and where you came from and redeems it for kingdom work. God knew he would make Paul to be this Israelite of Israelites, and now he's using it to teach theological truths to other purebreds who are clinging to something that's straw. That's his personal history. He moves on then from personal history to ancient history. Now, if it's ancient history in his day, it's really ancient by our day. But here's what he's doing. He's reaching back to biblical history. Things that have been written down for our benefit so that he can show that God's plan and people are intact, even if the great prophet Elijah didn't see it. And he was usually a pretty strong right-on guy. Here's what it says in verse 2. Follow along. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets and they have demolished your altars. He's talking about fellow Israelites. And I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. How current does this complaint feel of the ancient prophet Elijah? You ever feel like in the Silicon Valley, I I alone am, am, am left? Does no one else care about the righteous things of God? Man, that's what Elijah felt. He felt it, but it was wrong. Why? Because only God sees the beginning from the end. Elijah is sort of representative of the rest of Israel's history. When you think about the heroes of the faith, and this is the heroes of our faith, the reason that they're called out as heroes is because there weren't many of them. They were living in very, very dark times, and they shone brightly precisely because it was so dark. Because the masses were going in a different direction, we call them out as heroes because they did things that were so radically different. Let me give you a few examples that will come to mind. During the Babylon captivity, Daniel, Ezekiel, 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Mordecai, Esther. Those of you who know your Old Testament go, yeah, man, those are people who did just some incredibly courageous things against the flow of everyone else around them. How about in Jesus' first advent when he comes as a baby? Think of Zacharias and Elizabeth. Think of Moses, uh, Mary and Joseph. Think of Simeon and Anna and some shepherds in a field. God is working a plan and maintaining a people, even when that story turns really dark and the government of the land decides to kill all children two age, uh, ages two years and younger. How about during Jesus' ministry as an adult? He had very many admirers, but very few followers, and his closest inner circle denied him at his hour of need. Things regularly appear dark and bleak, but God remains faithful. God is one who supplies the grace so that a remnant will remain intact. And that gives us hope today, church. All right, now on to Paul's day. So that's ancient history. Now he moves into contemporary times. Verse 5. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Do you see it? God is preserving a people. What's a key identifier of this people according to Paul? It's this. These three words are precious to me. Chosen by grace. Chosen by grace. Those of you who've been here week after week with Romans, I've been using this term, sovereign grace. Sovereign grace carries with it this idea, chosen by grace. That is a theologically packed idea. To be really clear on this theological point, Paul basically repeats this in the negative. Chosen by grace says the same thing as this. And if it's by grace, it's no longer by works. So he states it in the negative to really drive this home. Now, I was studying this passage, Romans chapter 11, verses 5 and 6, and I'm thinking about the Reformation, and I'm going, wow, could it be that a passage like this is what sparked this fire in Martin Luther to say, it's so clear, the dogma of the church is wrong. The sinner is completely saved by grace. We don't add anything to it moving forward. I don't know that this is a passage, but he was studying in Romans and in Galatians, teaching up to um, this, this Reformation movement. I wonder if he just thought, man, no more excuses that we haven't heard. No more excuses that we haven't understood. We, the church, have an obedience problem, and I'm going to do something about it. And with that, a little match lights a forest fire that kind of purifies the church and alters history. And it came from Romans and Galatians. That's where his head was at. That's where he was soaking in. This idea of those chosen by grace has a flip side. We've already covered this pretty extensively in Romans. There's a flip side to those chosen by grace. It's the rest. Listen to verse 7. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. 
Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking because Israel was seeking what can't be found. Let me say it again. Israel failed to obtain what she was seeking because Israel was, was seeking something that can't be found. Here it is. Um, happiness and wholeness apart from God. If you're seeking happiness and your wholeness apart from God, it can't be found. They didn't submit to God's righteousness. They set up their own system and standard, and then they went after it with absolute, impressive religious fervor. Remember the kids' swim meet from a few weeks ago? Jesus is the end of the law. Kids, the swim race is over. You were all disqualified the moment you left the blocks before you even hit the water. Take all of that striving that you're trying to win a race with and repent. You know what repent means? It means turn around. Take all that energy that you're trying to win a race that is unwinnable and realize the race has been won and paid for by Jesus. Take all that energy and run back to the Father. He's there waiting for you. In fact, according to Jesus, the Father isn't just there waiting for you, waiting for the repentant sinner to come home, arms folded, you know, sort of foot tapping, waiting for the sinner to get all the way to him, and then after a proper amount of groveling, barely letting him back into the household. What does Jesus paint a picture of the Father? That he would suffer the shame and indignation of running toward the repentant sinner. No groveling necessary. In fact, he cuts that off. He makes a declaration. Son. And then he gives a command. Remember the command? Feast. Man, this is good news, friends. This is the picture Jesus paints of the prodigal son. And when the slightest turn back with the tiniest amount of faith, with just the glimmer of hope, maybe I could just work for my dad. I'll just be a servant. It's better than pig slop. The father says, man, come to me. Paul says it this way. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. But I don't understand the theology of Romans. Neither do I, and I'm the pastor. But I have so much to learn and grow in. We all do, friend. But you don't understand where I've been. No, I don't. But you're not too far ruined. You're not too far gone. That's contemporary history that Paul looks at. Look at verse 9. He goes on to say this. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Now, this is a pretty obscure reference that a lot of smart scholars don't have a clue on. But here's what, here's what we can know. We can know this. That this idea of table is sort of what you feed on. It's your sustenance. That's what it's representative of. We have a saying in our day and age, you are what you eat, right? Well, think about that in a more metaphorical sense. Here's what's interesting. What was Israel feasting on? 
They'd eaten the fruit of self-reliance, and they were drinking the wine of pride. When you look at Israel as a nation, that was their meal. That was what they were feeding on and trusting in. Such that when a king comes riding in on a donkey, they couldn't see it. They couldn't see it for the help that, that it was. John MacArthur in his commentary writes this, One of the saddest commentaries of history is that so many people place their trust in the very thing that damns them. All false religions, pagan, cultic, unbiblical Christianity, and every other kind, present counterfeit means of salvation. The more their adherents feed on the falsehoods, the more immune they come, they become to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the living bread of life. Paul is saying this, in our day, the choosing and receiving of the, of the grace of God continues, as does the rejecting and the hardening. Paul's personal history, ancient history, Paul's contemporary history, that brings us to the present, to our history. Some 2,000 years after all of this takes place, you and I are here bearing witness to the ongoing plan and people of God, safely intact, safely wandering through a world that is shaken, held by a God who can't be shaken. The waves come in patterns, they come in sets, but they're not identical, right? So even though we can kind of see it coming, no wave is the same, and so it is with history. We see sort of cyclical patterns, but each era is unique in its own ways. What I want you to do is pull back for a second and, and note this pattern of we've done stuff wrong and we should pay someone for it. If you go and research how Baal was worshipped, which is really a demon god, a pagan god, they would pay with their own precious children's lives to appease this capricious God. We've done wrong stuff. We know someone has to pay something, so we're going to pay that. If you sort of fast forward to Paul's day, the Israelites were paying with great effort. It was religion. They were holding to the traditions of men. If you fast forward to Martin Luther's day, what was being paid? Actual silver was being paid for salvation. We've done wrong stuff. We know someone should pay something. Here, priest, here's some silver. Pronounce me forgiven. Look up the word absolution and go Google that later on today. That's what was going on in Martin Luther's day. How about our day? I think you give a lot of answers to this, but I think in our day, a lot of people pay with causes and charities. A lot of people are pretty shameless. They do a lot of wicked stuff. They don't sense the slightest bit wrong with it. But I think there's a sense of, I'm really passionate about this cause. I'm, or I'm really going to give myself to this charity and to these different things. And what that is, is I know I've done some wrong stuff. So I'm going to kind of, you know, Offset my bad with some good on this earth. 
This is a well-taught church, so we know that a price has been paid, but not by any of us. We cling to that. Remember this picture from last week? The bridge from sinful man to a holy God begins on God's side. Don't sacrifice your children. God did that. Don't pay your money. Don't give your effort. Don't start a charity if you think that's what's going to bridge the gap because none of those bridges even come close to getting you to a holy God. I'll say it again. Christianity stands alone in God starting and completing the construction process. We receive the Father's hand and we go to Tokyo. Remember? That's it. That's why we sing, friends. You know, God has seen fit to having you alive on this day in history. Isn't that kind of cool to think about? You don't deserve air in your lungs today. God's gifting it to you. So Christian, I ask, what are we going to do with it? What would history look back and say of the Christians in the Silicon Valley around the year 2017? And we have a part to play right now. You're sitting here hearing this message on this particular Sunday. What are you going to do with it? If you're taking notes, jot these down. We've been ending our time together each week, getting really clear. What are we supposed to do with this? What does God do? Because we don't want to try and do God's part, and we don't want to neglect our part. Number one, we pay attention to history. Our personal history, the past, and contemporary days. I'm going to challenge you to be careful to interpret from the one who holds it all together and not from current voices. Because current voices will always interpret your life and what's going on in society in a vastly different way than what God says about it. Number two, we want to continue to seek what can be found, wholeness and happiness in God. Israel didn't find what it was looking for. Why? Because they were seeking their righteousness apart from God. The Bible condemns self-righteousness. Number three, change history is what we do. As God's chosen people of grace, we change history. We rest on the finished work so that we can strive at the good work that God's given us to do. All right, what does God do? Well, he writes history. And this includes his sovereign choosing and our free will. And that's mysterious. And that's how God works. Get used to it. Number two, he remains reliable. His plan and his people are intact at all times in spite of what appearances may be. We can be sure this morning that the God we sing to is not threatened by anything that you read in the newspaper this week. God's got it in his hands. Jesus, we praise you for dying on a cross, for being obedient to the point of death on our behalf. Father, we trust you that you see the beginning from the end. We pray that the Holy Spirit would be our Intimate ally in this, God, that we would be yielding to the very spirit of Jesus that is alive in us, that dwells in us, that provides the strength and guidance we need. In Jesus' name, amen.